pray together. Father, we pray as we turn to your word now that you would draw us, God, to a place where we might see together, not only in the sense with our eyes and studying a text, but Father, with our hearts and our minds as we see the reality portrayed in this text. God, a reality that is that extends, that is beyond what is physical, but a spiritual truth, Father, that satisfies our hearts beyond the things that our world offers, Father, that we might see Jesus as the all-satisfying object of our heart's desires. Father, might you lead us to see the beauty of Jesus, Father, in your truth today so that we might be made more and more confident of all that you have done for us in the gospel and that we might then lead others to see this hope that is ours, a living hope, a present hope, and a glorious future reality that you have established for us and have proclaimed clearly in these words. So God, we ask that you would bless this time now. Guard error from my lips, Father. Guard distraction from our ears so that we might hear you speak and you alone. And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I've said on numerous occasions, I have great memories from my childhood. I don't know how your childhoods went, but mine was fantastic. I Growing up in Southern Africa was just incredible for a little boy, and Herbert can attest to this. We enjoyed playing in the bush, uh, not a bush, but the bush. We enjoyed seeing wild animals, and not in zoos, but actually out in the wild. And we enjoyed visiting places like the Victoria Falls, and then a host of other little boy things. And we even got to enjoy the beach. Now, seeing that Zimbabwe, as you know, was landlocked, our visits weren't as simple nor as spontaneous as hopping in a car and in 30 minutes meandering along the Assateague Beach with our toes in the ocean. No, our beach trips had to be far more intentional because of the length of time that it took to get there, as well as the terrain that we had to cross in the process. For our family to get to the ocean, we had to drive for three days. I'm not making it up. Three days through a sparsely populated land over barren mountains and as well through an arid desert. And I know it sounds cinematic, but it's not. Seriously, this was the reality for us. And to get to the beach required crossing some incredibly tough territory. And every time we did so, we were made all the more impressed by those first settlers who had done it in wagons. They must have been incredible. But the hardest part of the journey for me was always the Karoo Desert. It was so hot. Whenever we'd stop and open the side doors, it just the heat hit you in the face like an oven. It was just ridiculous. And so, as you can imagine, traveling through such harsh environment required planning. And so we were always well-stocked with water, just in case. And to aid travelers, I remember there being these just massive gas stations. And when I say massive, I'm using that adjective in relation to all things Africa as well as little boy because in reality, the shell ultra cities as they were called. And I think the, the intent was for the name to give you a sense of how amazing they were, perception, if you will. But they were really only the size of our royal farms or our Wawa's, and so they really weren't all that amazing. But for me and my brothers, they were incredible. I mean, they were like a little country in and of themselves. And they felt like they were positioned right on the edge of our thirst 
and bladder limits. I mean, we'd always be beginning to complain about being thirsty because we had drunk all our water and now we needed to go to the bathroom and we were also getting thirsty so we needed a little bit more water, but dad wouldn't stop. When Quentin Morgan got in a routine, the man just went and we were told, you just need to hold it and next time, don't drink all your water so fast. And so those last moments, which as you can imagine, felt like days, months even, were just brutal until finally we would see that shell sign in the distance and we would know that that hope that relief was coming closer. Only on one occasion, I remember that it was only partial. Because when we used the restrooms, we went outside and we realized that there was no water. All of the water fountains were broken, which was par for the course in Africa. But now with our minds no longer distracted by the need for the bathroom, we became consumed with our need for water. What had moments ago appeared to us as this oasis in the desert now felt like a death trap. Now sure, we'd gone to the bathroom, but as little boys, we could have done that anywhere. What we needed was water, water. And have you ever felt like that? Where whether it was a hunger or a thirst or some other human, basic human need, but you arrived at a place that you felt sure could provide that which you so desperately needed, only you came to figure out that it couldn't. And this is the reality that was facing God's people when they arrived at Mara in the desert of Shore. And in this experience, God revealed further attributes of his character in order that the people of Israel might know him as he is. And it's these self-revelations that I would like for us to see again together this morning. So if you have your Bibles, if you'd open them with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 15, Exodus 15 and find verse 22. And the first 21 verses that compose this chapter are Moses and Miriam's song. This is the song that they led Israel to sing following the Lord's victory over Pharaoh as the Egyptian army was drowned in the sea. And I'm sure many of you have probably heard this song, you're familiar with it, at least in the children's version. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Hey, the Lord, my strong, my strength, my shield, has now become my victory. Oi, oi. It's catchy, and you'll thank me for singing it later, I promise. I know some of you have heard it. The words of that song are taken from the first 21 verses that are here in chapter 15. And it's following this song that Israel heads out into the wilderness. And so let's read about that journey now, beginning with verse 22. Exodus 15, beginning in verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. He said, If you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there near the water. And may God bless the public reading of his word. Church, the first thing that I believe God reveals in regards to himself in this text is the truth that he knows and provides for all our needs. The God of the Bible knows and provides for all our needs. After 
Yahweh's powerful victory over Pharaoh. His presence goes before his people once again with Moses at the head. Now, our text reads that Moses led Israel. But we know from chapter 13 and verse 21, which we've studied before, that by day... The Lord went ahead of his people in a pillar of cloud by, to guide them, and by night in a pillar of fire. And so while it is Moses who's attributed here with leading, just remember that he isn't the one that's guiding this trek. He, he's simply the first man in line. God, the Lord is at the head of the caravan, and he's directing it as to where he desires that it go. And in verse 22, we read that this direction is out into the desert of Shur, where for three days... They journey without finding any water. Now, can you imagine at this point how the Israelites must have felt? The shore region that's referenced here is one quite similar to the Karoo Desert that I described so theatrically a little bit earlier. It was and is a vast, rugged, sparsely populated wilderness region in the northern Sinai of the Middle East. And it's one that today stretches from the eastern side of the Suez Canal all the way into the Negev. In Israel, in Moses' time, scholars have determined that this area was past the outer boundaries of Egypt's most remote fortifications, and therefore it re represented freedom from any further pursuit by their former oppressors. So now, in the desert of Shur, Israel could finally feel safe from their Egyptian enemies and be encouraged as one of their initial demands of Pharaoh, which was to go into the wilderness, has been realized, and thus. Situated now in the desert, Israel is beginning to taste the fullness of God's promised freedom. However, after three days of traveling without coming across any water, the people are beginning to worry. Anxious parents, uh, along with everyone else, had most certainly been rationing their water so that they would have enough. But now, after failing to find any sources from which to refill their empty containers, the whining of their children <laughs> had certainly taken on a different tone. What had initially been little more than a source of irritation, it might have even been somewhat humorous, now was a cause of growing concern. Can you relate to that sentiment this morning? Have you ever faced a situation in which an initial discomfort was viewed as nothing more than, say, maybe an inconvenience, maybe even something to laugh at? But then as time went on, that very same issue grew, and it became a source of genuine worry. I remember when I had surgery on my Achilles tendon, I had to keep my leg rested on a cushion for like a month. And at first, my foot would fall asleep, my toes would tingle, and Melinda and I would laugh about it. But after several weeks, I noticed all of a sudden my big toe was completely numb. I couldn't feel that thing at all. And what had initially been a source of humor, laughing about, hey, I can't feel my toe, suddenly became a cause of great concern. Will I ever feel my toe again? What is that going to mean for movement and all? And I remember speaking to my surgeon about it following one of my, my, my checkups. But have you ever found yourself increasingly troubled by something that initially you saw as no big deal? And I believe that this was the experience of Israel here in the desert of Shur as revealed by their response given us in verse 24. But before we discuss the people's reaction, we can't miss the fact that it was the Lord who was leading them here. Yahweh was the one at the head of this train, and he was directing it exactly where he desired it go. And thus, he was fully aware of his people's needs, and in his perfect time, he led them to the waters at Marah. And then, upon their discovery that the water was undrinkable, we see verse 25, how the Lord provided Moses with exactly what he needed, once again, to address this concern. The Lord clearly knew what his people needed, and he ably provided 
to meet those needs. And church, just as Moses, or as Yahweh rather, knew all of Israel's needs, so does he know about all of our needs. The God of the Bible knows everything about us. There isn't anything that he doesn't know. God's knowing is such that it never changes. He doesn't come to know or cease to know. For if he did his declaration to be I am, Yahweh, couldn't be true. Yahweh, by very definition, just is. And he can't become or, or gain anything. For if he did, then he would defy his own existence as I am. And thus, he knew exactly what Israel needed as they journeyed through the desert of Shur. And he knows exactly what you need as you journey through this desert that we call life. And right here, I just want to point out how this knowing, both in the time of Israel and for us as well, isn't influenced by factors such as the severity of the need or the significance of the one who possesses it. Because remember in the New Testament, Jesus declared in his Sermon on the Mount to those who are listening, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Friends, the God of the Bible knows our every need, and he has promised to provide for those needs. Well, at this moment, your mind might be screaming, Andrew, I get that. But then why doesn't he? Fair enough, but why doesn't he? You might be quite happy to, to accept that first point in regards to God's character, but you're battling with personal experience in which God's knowing and his providing for you just haven't seemed to come together. And on Friday evening, Melinda and I had the opportunity to attend the Mercy Me concert. And prior to a number of the songs, the lead singer would share with the audience why they wrote the song, the experiences that were behind the song. And in one song in particular, he shared about his family's experience with a son who has diabetes. And he'd said for 16 years, they'd been battling with this disease. And every year they had to visit the doctor. And in that visit, he was always reminded of this frustrating fact. God knows everything. God knows the need that I have and my son has in regards to this illness. And he could heal him. He could. But he hasn't. Why? Why? And this just burdened this guy, and it led him to write a beautiful song. But it might be this morning that you're in that same boat with a reality of need that you've been facing. God knows of it, but Andrew, I just don't see my personal experience leading me to realize that he can provide for that need, as you've just said. And so you're feeling like the Israelites did, as conveyed in verse 24, which I said we'd discuss in just a moment. So would you look back at verse 24 with me there in your texts? At this point here, Israel has arrived at Marah. So they're three days without water, and they're staring at a lake that could slake their thirst, only it's undrinkable. And we read this. The people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? <laughs> Church, I believe this reaction reveals a further characteristic of the God of the Bible, and that is he tests his people. The God of the Bible tests his people. Because we've just pointed out how God knew what Israel needed and how according to verse 25 he provided Moses with what was needed to solve the concern caused by these bitter waters. Further, we know it was God who was clearly leading them in the wilderness in the first place. It was he who safely guided them through the desert of Shur and it was he who delivered them then to the waters of Marah. So if God led the people to the water and God provided Moses with the means of making it potable, what possible reason could he have had for doing it all in this order? 
Why not simply provide his people with sweet water to begin with? And I believe the answer is revealed by the people's response. They grumbled. Rather than trusting God could and would provide, they grumbled. They seemingly forgot the fact of God's presence going before them in a pillar of cloud and of fire. They forgot the spray of the sea as God had brought it crashing over their Egyptian enemies just three days prior. And they forgot the scenes of destruction that God had wrought on their slave masters through the plagues. The Lord tested His people and they forgot. Now, if you're following the reasoning revealed in this text and you recall how our previous point emphasized the nature of God's knowing as that which cannot change, meaning that there's nothing that God can come to learn. Fair enough then you might be wondering, well, Andrew, why then does God test his people? Why? I mean, clearly God's testing isn't done for the same reason that those of our college students are tested. They make us sit for exams to find out what we actually know or don't know. I mean, God already knew the answer or the outcome to the test because he knows everything. So why then does God test his people? And I believe the answer is so that his people might know just how weak and worthless they truly were, and how gracious and loving He truly is. And Emmanuel, this is a reality that many today find completely unpalatable. For to say that people are innately weak and worthless apparently fails to take into account all that the human race has accomplished, all the good that's been done, the discoveries that have been made, and the developments right. How can we say today that, that people are weak when you consider all of the success of science, the advancements in modern medicine and accomplishments in technology? How can you see people as innately worthless when you measure all the good that's been done? And there's even people in the church today who reject such a claim as they argue that God's very plan of salvation demonstrates the value of the human person. For Why else would God take on human flesh, die in their place, if they weren't of immeasurable worth? And friends, this is a very tricky attribution of value because it's true. God did die to save sinners. He did take on human flesh, become like us in every way except without sin, die on a cross, be buried for three days, and then rise from the dead so that whoever repents and believes in him might have eternal life. God did all of this, but not because we have immeasurable worth, but rather because he does. God's testing of his people reveals the extent of their brokenness, and that's a point that I believe we see clarified in the next self-revelation of God in our text, which is that he makes laws. The God of the Bible makes laws. So would you look back with me on verse 25? Verse 25, so... Moses has cried out to the Lord, and the Lord has provided him with a stick, which he throws into the water, which seems crazy, and yet it works because the water becomes sweet. And then we read this. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. So following Moses' appeal, the Lord makes what our, if you have an NIV, translates as a decree and a law. Now, contrary to what we might naturally conclude from this seemingly double-faceted phrase, this is, these are not two things, two separate things. Rather, this is a linguistic tool that's used to express a single idea. 
And we use similar expressions today when we refer to someone's last will and testament or we inquire as to someone else's well-being, their health, and we're told that they're up and around or, oh, John's up and at them, right? So this, each of these double-faceted, double-used expressions communicates a single idea, as does this phrase, decree and law. And thus, God makes a law for his people, single law, which stated simply says that if they listen to his voice, God's voice, and they obey then they will not face the judgment that God brought upon the Egyptians. And what's interesting here as regards the description of the law God delivers is that it's expressed using the same linguistic tool as the law is itself. Meaning, listen carefully to the voice of the Lord and do what is right in His eyes. That refers to exactly the same thing. As do the following phrases. Pay attention to His commands and keep all His decrees. Both of these statements are employed to ensure that the sweeping nature of God's expectations are made clear. God's desire as he speaks to his people beside the waters of Marah is that they give him full, not partial, but full loyalty and obedience. And thus, if God wants it, they do it. The God of the Bible makes laws. Now, I would imagine that this point comes as no surprise to most of us, if not all of us this morning. I believe the reality of religious law is a universal idea. It's, it's almost as universal as the idea of right and wrong, of morality. Off the top of my head, I can't even think of a religion that does not have divine laws of some kind. I mean, direction as to how we're to go about living in order to obtain the favor of our deity. It's just a given. It serves, even atheism has laws, follows set laws that serve the individual seeking to secure their ultimate happiness. And so I would imagine we're all familiar with the concept of biblical laws. And for those of us who know the scriptures, probably even some here who don't, I would bet you've heard of the Ten Commandments this morning. As Americans, the Ten Commandments have influenced our nation in more ways than many are willing to admit these days. And these laws, the Ten Commandments, were given by Yahweh to Moses just a short time after this experience here at Marah. And they provided the people with even greater specificity as to what God viewed as right. So, to that end, would we agree this morning we're all aware of what is meant by divine law? We're all on the same page. So here at Marah, God gives his people a law, apparently aimed at helping them to know what he views as right, and should they obey it, it will ensure them with protection from all of the punishments that God brought upon Egypt. And I said, apparently aimed at helping very intentionally, because remember our previous points as regards God's knowing and his testing? We've already established that God knows the outcome of the test with which he's presenting his people as he delivers this decree. He already knows what their response will be. Thus, his motivation for providing them with this test isn't to hopefully help them to know what to do, that those who in fact successfully do it may achieve the promised outcome of avoiding the punishments brought upon Egypt. Are you following me here? The point is that what we're reading about taking place here at Marah, and for that matter, all that follows on the Mount of Sinai when God delivers the Ten Commandments, it wasn't a decree intended to provide salvation for those who could fulfill it. Rather, it was a law intended from the very first to reveal to God's people just how broken they were. And let me show you how I'm not alone 
in this understanding of God's purpose behind his laws. Would you keep a finger there in Exodus 15 and flip over to the New Testament into Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Paul's epistle to the Romans. And find chapter 3 and verse 20. Romans 3.20. In the chapters prior, Paul goes to great length to show how God's righteous wrath falls justly on all people because of their wickedness. He establishes how both Jews and Gentiles alike are rightly condemned. For between the word of nature, creation, and the word of God, special revelation, the Bible, his expectations have been made clear such that we are all, each and every one, without excuse. And then, in chapter 3 and verse 20, we read these words. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the what? The law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of what? Sin. Church, here lies the motivation behind God's decree at Mara. God knew the hearts of his people. He knew the stubbornness that they had displayed and would display. He knew that they shared the hardness of Pharaoh's heart such that they could never abide, never abide by the laws he gave them. Now, we might stop at this point and quickly interject, but Andrew, if God knew that people could never fulfill the law, well, why did he give it to them in the first place? And if you're struggling with this sentiment, you share the same feelings as those to whom Paul was writing here. Because in verse 21 of Romans 3, he goes on and says this, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. In other words, the necessary obedience that God referenced in connection to the law is something that not a single person could attain. Thus, the law ensured that no one could be misled to think that they had acquired salvation on their own or of their own merit. Rather, verse 22, Paul continues, this righteousness from God comes through faith. So not works of obedience, but faith in Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law on our behalf. So this righteousness comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory and are justified how? Freely. Freely. So not in response to any merit on our own, by His grace, freely by His grace, through the redemption that came through, as you said, Jesus Christ. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice. And so, friends, God's saving doesn't ignore the fact that we've all failed to obey His decrees. We're not excused from our so-called Egyptian punishments earned. Rather, he goes on, He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time. So as, so this is God, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Guys, this is the gospel. That's the gospel. And it isn't a New Testament phenomenon that God established following the failure of his law in the Old Testament. Rather, this was God's purpose plan from the beginning to save his people from their sin. He knew that Israel would never live up to the expectations of the law. And for those who are familiar with the Exodus story, the very next chapter reflects these very same truths of God. And these very same attitudes by Israel, reflected by Israel as their wanderings continue and it leads them this time in chapter 16 to grumble about food. If you remember the story, they grumble towards Moses. Moses and Aaron cry out to the Lord and the Lord provides the people with that which they need. In this case, it's meat and bread. 
God also gives them laws, if you recall, in regards to these provisions. But again, the people fail. Why? Because they're sinful. They are worthless and incapable of fulfilling God's law in and of themselves. And friends, I pray that we can all see the truth this morning that we are as the Israelites. And God's law still serves the same purpose. No matter how advanced we may appear or think ourselves to be in comparison to the Jews of the Old Testament at heart, we remain broken. We can't merit God's favor. We can't obey and thus acquire the necessary righteousness to enter His holy presence. We are sinful, each and every one of us. And apart from God's grace in the gospel, we are without hope. Have you been trying to merit God's favor? Have you been struggling to obey God's law so that you could manipulate Him, get Him to owe you one, so to speak? I pray that as we've seen in this text that and that of Paul's letter to the Romans. God's law was never intended to save because as Paul states himself a little later in chapter 8 and verse 3, he writes, for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. God did. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Church, God gave us a law so that we might know just how broken we are. And just how beautiful Jesus is as he came and fulfilled it all for us. Have you experienced the power of this gospel? I pray that you have. Because if you have, then you know the final truth that I believe God reveals in regards to his character in our text this morning. And that is that God heals. The God of the Bible heals his people. The final statement of verse 26 there declares, I am the Lord who heals you. The more literal, literal rendering of this verse is for I am Yahweh, your doctor. Isn't that beautiful? I am Yahweh, your doctor. And friends, in this declaration, God wasn't assuring His people that they would never get sick. And this wasn't a, a guarantee for those who placed their faith in Yahweh that life would be lived without illness. Rather, this was a promise that God's people had no need to fear the sickness that had plagued Egypt. Why? For he would serve as his people's physician. And we see this so powerfully demonstrated just, just a book or so later in Numbers chapter 21, where if you're familiar with the story, Israel has once again sinned, and God has sent snakes amongst his people. And so a bronze serpent is raised in response to the people's cry so that whoever looks to the serpent, to that raised by God Almighty, will be healed. God serves as his people's physician. Have you looked to the Lord for healing? Now, I pray that you're not banking on your own abilities to score a place for you in eternity because if you are, then your damnation is guaranteed. Would you take a moment this morning to honestly assess yourself and tell me that you believe that you are good enough, that you can weight the scales in your favor such that you can merit entrance to the presence of the God of the universe. I pray that you would acknowledge the folly of such thinking, that you would admit the pride and the arrogance that marks such an attitude. Confess your sin, repent and believe, and allow God to be your healer. 
But church, for we who are Christ's children, I pray that we've been reminded today that our God knows our every need. And he has promised to provide. But he tests us and gives us his laws so that we might know we are totally dependent upon him for everything. And that he alone, he alone can heal us. Isn't our God awesome? Let's pray. Father, you are a God that heals. But to be described as such requires an admission of illness. And Father, for many, we're incapable of doing so. According to your word, we are incapable of acknowledging so until you give us life. For we are dead in our transgressions and sins. And yet, Father, you have determined through your gospel, heard, proclaimed and heard. And Lord, we have sung your gospel. We have prayed your gospel. God, we have seen your gospel in the scriptures today. So we have no excuse. Lord, and yet through this process, you have determined to bring life. And Lord, I pray that you have done that this morning. And Father, having realized the reality of our sin, that we are sick, we need a healer, that you might lead some today to a look to the God who is our doctor. Father, we can't find the healing that we so desperately desire in anything else. You alone are our healer. And Father, for our church this morning that's been struggling, and it's maybe just in the valleys of grief following the loss of loved ones or opportunities squandered, decisions made that have led to heartache, even in moments of joy and personal accomplishment. Father, might we be reminded, I pray today, that we depend on you for everything. You are aware of all our needs and you have promised to provide them. You've given us your law fulfilled perfectly by Christ and yet that we then desire to live in light of so that we might bring you glory. As Jesus urged us, if you love me, you'll obey me. God, might we live in obedience you, who is our healer, knowing that as our obedience does not merit us a closer walk with you, for that's been worked for us by Christ, but our obedience is merely the fruit of a heart that's been healed and demonstrates the reality of life. Father, might we be faithful to live in light of your gospel for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.